Benjamin Franklin's print shop and post office, the Arch Street Quaker Meeting House, and the Liberty Bell Pavilion. Now you'll notice an important omission from my list, and that's Independence Hall. That summer of 1976 was the bicentennial of American independence, and the marching armies of tourists had only one stop in mind, which was Independence Hall. And the result was that day after day, the queue to get into Independence Hall with my tour groups was wrapped around the outside of that venerable shrine of American independence to the tune of 45 minutes or more. Now, that was just too much of a chunk out of my two hours to spend standing in line. And so day after day and group after group, we took a pass on Independence Hall. There was one exception, almost, to this tale of frustration, on July 6th, two days after the big party celebrating exactly the 200th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, I took into Philadelphia a busload of one of the more unusual tourist groups to visit the city of brotherly love that summer. They were the members of the Bicentennial Wagon Train. This was a buckskin-clad collection of hardy sons of the pioneers who had crossed the United States eastward from the Pacific coast in a train of Conestoga wagons to commemorate the achievements of the frontiersmen. And I was the one who was going to bus them from their encampment in Valley Forge into old Philadelphia. July 6th was possibly the worst day imaginable for such an adventure, because it was also the day chosen by Queen Elizabeth II to pay her visit to Philadelphia, and the crowd forecast was rising toward 250,000 people. But when our bus finally snaked its way through the royalty-struck multitudes around Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell Pavilion, Independence Hall itself was nearly empty. The Queen was across Chestnut Street at the Liberty Bell Pavilion, and the vast throng had gone to get a closer look at the Queen. I turned in a froth of jubilation to my busload full of these paragons of American frontier history, and I excitedly announced that for the first time that summer, we could walk right into Independence Hall. And their response? They wanted nothing of it. These descendants of Wild Bill and Buffalo Bill and the Bill of Rights wanted instead to go across the street and see the Queen of England, the monarch at whose ancestor their ancestors had so brazenly cocked a snook. George III, I thought, never had it so good. Well, there is, of course, a moral to this story. Americans are amazingly inconsiderate toward the history of their own revolution. We know more than we usually give ourselves credit for about the revolution. Maybe we know more about it than the average American knows about almost any other era in American history. But we don't know very much about what a very unlikely event it was. We can usually understand some allusion to the sufferings of the Continental Army at Valley Forge, but who were those soldiers? We can fix certain images in our heads, images of unerring American riflemen picking off red-coated British soldiers whose generals served them up unthinkingly in solid rows of walking targets 
while the Americans crouched Indian-style behind rocks and trees. But why did the British fight that way? And why did the Americans end up fighting in just the same way? We can see in the mind's eye George Washington serenely sitting on a white horse or in his bateau as he crosses the Delaware. But do we understand why he lashed out angrily at his army as a collection of misfits, scum, and mutineers? And who really defeated the British army? Was it the Continentals? Or was it the French who intervened in the American War, not as a gesture of friendship so much as a first step to converting the American colonies into French ones? Above all, why was it that the American Revolution was really won, not in America at all, but in the Caribbean? Now, as you might